grateful to have the opportunity to be with you today. I hope on your way in you picked up one of these brochures about our work in Mississippi. Uh, we are on Facebook. We uh, have a website. Uh, we hope that you will stay in touch with us and, and keep informed about what is going on in the state of Mississippi as far as our missions work is concerned. I appreciate the introduction Dr. Holmes gave me and only disagree with the salary package portion <laughs> of that. Uh, but I do welcome any of you to, uh, to seek out and participate in our efforts in the state of Mississippi. God is blessing. We have 20 men who are right now working in the area of missions throughout the state, and we are supporting them either directly or indirectly and have 35 locations around the state that we've identified that we can plant churches right now. Uh, we have hot spots in the state uh, that we target because we know statistically that there are more than 70% of the households in those areas that do not have a single believer in the home. And we need to plant churches in the state of Mississippi. And I know that, um, that I am correct in saying that what you are learning and what you are experiencing here is welcome in the state of Mississippi in the pulpits of our churches and, and through our missions program, what you preach ultimately after you have left this place is a welcome message in the state of Mississippi, and we hope that you will come and participate in what God is doing in the state of Mississippi. God has blessed me. I'm actually starting my sixth year there. I said six earlier. Six, starting my sixth year as the director of missions there, and the Lord has richly blessed my family and I, and I'm so glad to have Brother uh, Rhodes with me today who worked together with me on staff years ago at, at church I pastored and is now my pastor at Big Creek Baptist Church in Soso, Mississippi, um, and I appreciate him, his friendship, I appreciate what God is doing through his ministry as well. Let me begin with the bottom line up front, if I could. This passage that you heard this morning, Dr. Holmes read to you, just screams out to us that somebody is looking for you. Um, I'll give you this bottom line up front because it's what's laying on my heart. Most importantly, in verse number 35, Jesus will say at almost the end of this particular narrative, Say not ye that uh, there are four months and then cometh the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the field for they are white already unto harvest. I only introduce you to that bottom line up front because it speaks to the urgency of the passage that we're going to be looking at. In other words, if you were to ask yourself, why is this message important to me? Here's why. Because it was important to the Lord and he saw urgency in communicating this message. And it should then stir up in our hearts a sense of urgency about what he is 
instructing us to do. If we leave here with a clear understanding that the Lord expects us to be urgent about what we do, we might plug into the very beginning of this passage and how it says that he, Jesus, by agenda, went through Samaria. The Bible in King James Version says uh, he must needs go through Samaria. He did what he did by way of an agenda, uh, a narrative. A story, a divine story, a divine plan, a divine narrative that is ordered by God. And the urgency that he lays upon us is not outside the context of that divine order. And so ultimately what we'll see is that we don't create our own efforts and we don't do our own thing. We don't create a a, a work for the Lord, we enjoin ourselves to the God divine, the God sufficient, the God sustaining, to God's work. Something he's set in order and that he is doing, that's what we enjoin ourselves to. And if he has called you, if he has, if he has moved in your heart to be a part of what he is doing, then my friend, lay down the struggle and the difficulty of trying to say, well, how am I going to do this and what am I going to do? And just learn what he, God, is doing. Be regulated by his narrative and you'll be okay. But understand that with it there is an urgency. An urgency that he points out to us. This story has as its principal theme, worship. Now, I think you can see that in verse 23. Let me just read it again. It says, But the hour cometh, and now is, when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. The theme of this passage is worship, not evangelism and not discipleship even though those are on display in the passage very clearly and very obviously don't you think if you've read this passage you cannot overlook the fact that the lord is demonstrating himself how to evangelize the lost and how to disciple his disciples in the work I mean, so those things are clearly on display, but they're not the primary theme. The primary theme here is worship. And as such, it drives us, it drives us to understand why the Lord tells us to be urgently involved in going out if worship is the central theme. Well, let's try to join those two together if we can and make sense of it as best we can by just simply unfolding this passage in verse number 23. And it really falls out into four very simple points. I think you'll see them clearly. He points out first the participants in worship. He points us to the perpetuation of worship. He then points us to 
that person who is preeminent in our worship. And he lays down a foundation of presumption on the part of the Father for worship. Notice these with me. He says, but the hour cometh and now is when the true worshiper. And there's the participant, isn't it? I mean, the participant in this passage, the person that is spoken of is a true worshiper. And that true worshiper, well, by implication, is laid here in contrast to a false worshiper. I mean, we don't even have to you had to see the words to know that the Lord knows that there are some that do not worship correctly. There's some that, that worship falsely. And, and he distinguishes between those two, doesn't he? And John, the writer of this gospel, here begins to make his case for the deity of Christ. For he sets Christ in the foreground as the truth bearer who literally has the authority to comment about what is true worship, to set himself in a position as to say this is what is true and what is false. And as such, John is doing what John had intended to do throughout his gospel, and that is to make a big deal of the deity of Christ, right? And he sets him forth in that way. And and as he does, we begin to see that Christ is the truth bearer. And he is deity. And he will say things that are God things in this passage. For instance, he'll say, God is spirit. Now, who could say that but God? Who could say that but he who knows God, who is God, who could say God is spirit except the one who is deity. He says God things. He'll say things like he can only be worshipped in spirit and in truth. And so he not only comments about who God is, but how God is to be worshipped. He, Jesus, is greater than the Jacob that's mentioned in this passage who gave them the well. He is the prophet whom she perceives as she speaks with him. He is correctly perceived by her to be the Messiah, the one who is anointed of God. And that revelation comes to her in verse number 25. The Bible says, the woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus plainly says to her, I that speak unto thee am he. And that, and that revelation, that discovery is no different than the revelation that was discovered by Andrew in chapter 1 of John when, you know, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, went and found his brother Simon in verse 41 of chapter 1, and he said, we have found the Messiah. It's the same thing. It's a discovery of a truth about Christ that, quite frankly, is worth celebrating. 
a discovery of truth that is worth celebrating, especially when you realize that it's not something that you've discovered, but it's a person that you've discovered. You see, herein lies the problem that they were struggling with during the maybe the context of this passage, that they were worshiping things. Ritualism and ceremonialism had overtaken the intent of the narrative of God and they were worshiping things, whether it be in the mountain or whether it be in Jerusalem. In both of those places, the worship had gone south. And I'm reminded of of over in the Old Testament when David wanted to bring the ark into Jerusalem. And, and you remember, he went and he got it and he set it on an ox cart. And, and they started to move and somebody put their hand up there and, of course, he died. And you read the passage, you, you begin to understand that David had a right motive maybe, but he had a wrong order in what he was doing. He wanted to worship God He wanted to do it correctly, but he had a wrong order about how he went about it. And that wrong order led to a wrong operation. And that wrong operation led to a tragic outcome. And it wasn't until later that he went back and revisited the word of God and understood that God had said, do it my way. Do it the way I tell you to do it. That he, David, got it right. And the thing that David had done previously had displeased him and angered David. And it wasn't until David laid down his own efforts in submission to God and joined himself, joined himself, and literally joined himself to a narrative that God had already written prior to him, that he was able to then accomplish true worship. Worship. Worship is the theme here. And the participants are called true worshipers. I'm here to tell you today that there are a lot of people out there doing stuff that is not true. I'll just say it right, you know, like it is. You know, so many people just duplicating things over and over and over. And, you know, and, and, and it's hard even to tell whether it's of the world or, or where it's coming from. I mean, it's just... Amazing what's out there that's labeled and tagged and called worship. And yet the Bible clearly here indicates that he who is deity knows the difference. He knows the difference. Well, I could dwell here all day, but uh, let me move on. Not only does he, he present to us the participants in worship, but he speaks about the perpetuation of worship. Notice what he says. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshiper shall worship. Shall worship. That's a phrase, right? Um, and it kind of grabbed me when I saw it. I said, what, you know, what, what does this mean, this shall worship? Because it's that future, active, indicative. You know, it's a, it, 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 my mind wants to, say, wants to say in the human sense later on, you know, in other words, like John saw in Revelation chapter 4 when we get there, uh, like Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6, uh, 
you know, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Like that, we shall worship him. But the phrase, uh, at least the tense, is such that it means it starts now and continues into the future. So this is not something that's yet to come. It's something that is a part of the present narrative shall worship him. True worshipers are engaged now and shall continue to worship him in truth and in spirit. Now, listen, folks, um, I cannot in my finite mind wrap my thoughts around what heaven will be like. I can't help it. I, it's just I'm limited, right? Aren't you? We read in the Bible, we get a glimpse of glory divine, but we are limited in what we are able to comprehend about heaven. But, but think of this for just one moment. As a song that swells, I think I asked Brother Justin yesterday who knows more about music than I do. You called it a crescendo, right? A swelling of sorts of music. Think of a worship that just swells and swells and swells but never stops swelling. We can't comprehend that, can we? Because in the context of our humanness, worship is something we start and we end. This chapel service will end in a minute, and you will go away, and you'll put all this aside, and you'll go on. You know, we, we have the inability to, to just, but in the divine context of God's narrative, this worship, shall continue and never end, never diminish, never stop, never weaken, never relax, never ever will it lose. I thought of this. If in heaven we could worship God at a level that is worthy of his worth, well, then we will have arrived. And we cannot arrive with God. Can we? I know I'm just throwing some thoughts out there now and and laboring your minds to follow me, but listen, you cannot exhaust God. Therefore, the worship that we render to God will never be exhausted. It will continue and continue and continue and continue. You see the perpetuation of it. And this is exactly what the Lord is saying. He's saying true worshipers shall worship. Indeed, they began when he breathed air into the nostrils of man and he became a living soul and it has, not be, it has not stopped and no matter what's going on in the world around you today, my friend, nothing has ever altered this continual, sustaining worship of God. If you had the ability to rotate with the earth and simply get up in the morning with your coffee and hear the birds and then rotate with the world, guess what? You'd hear the birds all the way around the entire earth. You'd never, you'd never have a moment where there'd be silence. You'd hear the beauty of God's creation 
every single moment of every single day. And God is worshipped that way. What we do is enjoin ourselves to that. That's the, the narrative. Jesus is saying, but the hour cometh and now is. And, and look, even that part of it supports this continual perpetuation of worship. The hour cometh. But then he says, but now is. Both, it's coming, but it is. It's coming, but it is. And it'll continue to come, but it continues to be here. You're a part of that. You're enjoined to that. You, who are true worshipers, the perpetuation of this worship is Mind-boggling, really. But notice what he says. He points to the one who is preeminent in worship. He says, true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And, of course, we've already indicated that Christ is the truth bearer. And so it is Christ who is the gatekeeper. It is Christ who is, you know, the one who gives access to the throne room of God. It is through Christ and and in Christ and by Christ that we have our being. It is only Christ who enables us to be enjoined to this narrative. He is the truth bearer. And you know, that particular part of the narrative is often overlooked. And yet he said that's part of why he came. In John chapter uh, chapter. 18 when he stood before Pilate this is what he said he said to this end was I born and for this cause came I into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth unto the truth now I know we like to focus on those things that are uh, of benefit to us of grace and mercy and forgiveness and and eternal life and things of that nature yes but the Bible says in John chapter 1 and verse number 14, that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We overlook the truth part and that's what enjoins us to this worship. We focus on the grace part because that gives us freedom and liberty. In verse 17, he says, the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And you'll notice throughout the entire gospel of John that he emphasizes this word truth over and over and over again. 14 and verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Even when he talks about the spirit to come, he will say, he is the spirit of truth. Everything that John will say, everything in his gospel will lend itself to this, this need to understand the principal theme of worship. And the way we enjoin ourselves to that is by the person of Jesus Christ. For he is truth. You see, it's by him that all things are regulated. 
It's in him that all that we do should be regulated. We cannot escape that. When he speaks here of the one who is preeminent in our worship, it is Christ. In truth, it is Christ. He speaks here of the Father. But we know there's a unity of the Godhead present in this passage. He, Christ, is the preeminent one. And then there's a presumption of this worship. Listen to what he says. He says, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. So the Father presumes that those true worshipers will worship him perpetually forever. Dr. Holmes even read about that, didn't he? Psalm 145, he said, My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. You see, this is who we are. We are worshipers of God. We are in Christ. We are are people whom God has sought out by his son, Jesus Christ, and enjoined together with him, have become a part of his narrative. We sing his song. We reflect his character. We do his work. Which brings me back to my bottom line up front. Therefore, my friend, Don't say that there are four months. Then cometh the harvest. No. No, no, my friend. But you need to lift up your eyes and look out on the fields, for they're white already unto harvest. And you need to understand something, my friend. That my Lord in this passage was weary. He was thirsty. He was so hungry, his disciples had gone away to the town to buy meat, to bring back to him. In his humanness, he was tired. And truth-bearing is hard work. And if you're not often weary and tired and hungry and thirsty in truth-bearing, then you're maybe enjoined to some other story or some other narrative or some other script that somebody else is writing, maybe even your own, but it's not the one that God has ordered. For like Christ, if you truly engage in that perpetual worship of God, it's going to demand that you lift up your eyes, see what work needs to be done, and engage in it. And it will tire you. It will weary you. It will exhaust your humanness and bring you to a place where you will have to depend on nothing but the Spirit of God in you. And you'll resource your strength from some other means besides humanness. And you'll cry out and say, my meat is to do the will of my Father. Let me just ask you, have you ever been that tired? Have you ever been that exhausted? 
Have you ever been that expended in your, in your work, in your labor, in your, in your suffering, in your service for Christ that you literally said, hey, the only way that I could continue on is through the strength of Christ. You see, we've got to get there. We've got to get there. That's who we are. That's what we do. That's what we're about. So he says to his disciples, look on the fields. For they are white already unto harvest, and the reap, he that reapeth receiveth wages, and gathereth fruit unto eternal life, and bo- uh, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. Rejoice together. And herein is that saying true. One soweth, and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereon ye bestowed no labor. I just want to close by saying that like Christ was sent into this world, you are sent into this world as well. But as you contemplate the work that you do, Please do not give yourself such glory as to suggest that, hey, I can do something. Or, hey, I can accomplish this. Or, hey, they need me. Or, hey, God needs my effort. But recall this passage and remember again and again and again that as Christ was sent, he sent you. And you are a part of his narrative. Now that's why we do missions. I mean in the state of Mississippi. That's why we do missions. Some people would say to me, well, you know, missions is overseas somewhere. Is it? Missions is where I'm at. I mean, wherever God has put me, I am going to do the work that he has called me to do. That's what missions is about. I know, I know sometimes what we do is equip ourselves and then we say, oh, I've got to find me a church. Or I've got to find me a field. I like what a good friend of mine who was a missionary said one time. He said, if you're not doing it where you're at, you're not going to do it where you're going. Amen? Bottom line is right where you're at, get busy. Do something where you are. Why? Because if you do, you'll have much to praise him about. And that, my friend, is why we do it. So that we can worship him in truth and in spirit. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would, Father, take my feeble attempt to share it with these folks and and just unwrap it in their hearts as they distill these thoughts later. In your Holy Spirit, Father, I pray would anoint it and, and just give it meaning to every person that's here. I pray, Father, you would press it down upon each person's heart in the very context where they are right now. 
and that, Father, we would be excited and yet be busy about our service to you. Thank you for seeking us out. Father, for sending your son, Jesus, to find us where we were. And by your spirit, awaken us to the truth of our need for Christ. Father, I thank you for loving us and for saving us. I give you the glory for all of this, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.